Hello, my name is Hassan Sorrells, and this is the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast, episode number 35. Today, we will be covering the third and final book on our podcast in the USA Trilogy by John Dos Passos, The Big Money. from The Big Money by John Dos Passos to open our episode today. Mr. Ford, the automobiler, the future writer, wrote in 1905, Mr. Ford, the automobiler, began by giving his steed three or four sharp jerks with a lever at the right-hand side of the seat. That is, he pulled the lever up and down sharply in order, as he said, to mix air with gasoline and drive the charge into the exploding cylinder. Mr. Ford sipped a small electric switch handle, and there followed a puff, 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 the puffing of the machine, assured a higher key. She was flying along at about eight miles an hour. The ruts in the road were deep, but the machine certainly went with a dreamlike smoothness. There was none of the bumping common even to a streetcar. By this time, the boulevard had been reached, and the automobiler letting a lever fall a little let her out. Whizz! She picked up speed with infinite rapidity. As she ran on, there was a clattering behind the new noise of the automobile. For 20 years or more, ever since he left his father's farm when he was 16 to get a job in a Detroit machine shop, Henry Ford had been nuts about machinery. First it was watches, then he designed a steam tractor, then he built a horseless carriage with an engine adapted from the auto gas engine he'd read about, the world of science, then a mechanical buggy with with a one-cylinder four-cycle motor that would run forward but not back. At last, in 98, he felt he was far enough along to risk throwing up his job with the Detroit Edison Company, where he'd worked his way up from night fireman to chief engineer to put all his time into working on a new gasoline engine. In the late 80s, he'd met Edison at a meeting of electric light employees in Atlantic City. He'd gone up to Edison after Edison had delivered an address and asked him if he thought gasoline was practical as a motor fuel. Edison had said yes. If Edison said it, it was true. Edison was the great admiration of Henry Ford's life. And in driving his mechanical buggy, sitting there at the lever, jauntily dressed in a tight button jacket and a high collar and a derby hat, back and forth over the level, ill-paved streets of Detroit, scaring the big brewery horses and the skinny trotting horses and the sleek rumped pacers with the motor's loud explosions, looking for men scatterbrained enough to invest money in a factory for building automobiles. He was the eldest son of an Irish immigrant who, during the Civil War, had married the daughter of a prosperous Pennsylvania Dutch farmer and settled down to farming near Dearborn in Wayne County, Michigan. Like plenty of other Americans, young Henry grew up hating the endless sogging through the mud about the chores, the hauling and the pitching manure, the kerosene lamps to clean, the irk and sweat and the solitude of the farm. He was a slender, active youngster, a good skater, clever with his hands. What he liked was to tend the machinery and let the others do the heavy work. His mother had told him not to drink, smoke, gamble, or go into debt, and he never did. When he was in his early 20s, his father tried to get him back from Detroit, where he was working as a mechanic and a repairman for the dry dock engine company that built engines for steamboats by giving him 40 acres of land. 
Young Henry built himself an up-to-date square white dwelling house with a false mansard roof and married and settled down on the farm, but he let the hired men do the farming. He bought himself a buzzsaw and rented a stationary engine and cut the timber off the woodlots. He was a thrifty young man who never drank or smoked or gambled or coveted his neighbor's wife, but he couldn't stand living on the farm. He moved to Detroit and in the brick barn behind his house tinkered for years in his spare time with a mechanical buggy that would be light enough to run over the clayey wagon roads of Wayne County, Michigan. By 1900, he had a practicable car to promote. He was 40 years old before the Ford Motor Company was started and production began to move. Speed was the first thing the early automobile manufacturers went after. Races advertised the makes of cars. Henry Ford himself hung up several records at the track at Gross Point and on the ice on Lake St. Clair. In his 999, he did the mile in 39 and 4 fifths seconds. But it had always been his custom to hire others to do the heavy work. The speed he was busy with was speed in production, the record's inefficient output. He hired Barney Oldfield, a stunt bicycle rider from Salt Lake City, to do the racing for him. Henry Ford had ideas about other things in the designing of motors, carburetors, magnetos, jigs and fixtures, punches and dies. He had ideas about sales, that the big money was in economical quantity production, quick turnover, cheap, interchangeable, easily replaceable, standardized parts. It wasn't until 1909, after years of arguing with his partners, that Ford put out the first Model T. Henry Ford was right. That season, he sold more than 10,000 tin Lizzie's. Ten years later, he was selling almost a million a year. In these years, the Taylor plan was stirring up plant managers and manufacturers all over the country. Efficiency was the word. The same ingenuity that went into improving the performance of a machine could go into improving the performance of the workmen producing the machine. In 1913, they established the assembly line at Ford's. That season, the profits were something like $25 million, but they had trouble in keeping the men on the job. Machinists didn't seem to like it at Ford's. Henry Ford had ideas about things other than production. He was the largest automobile manufacturer in the world. He paid high wages, maybe it, maybe it, Maybe if the steady workers thought they were getting a cut, a very small cut of the profits, maybe it would give trained men an inducement to stick to their jobs. Well-paid workers might save enough money to buy a tin Lizzie the first day. Ford announced that clean-cut, properly married American workers who wanted jobs had a chance to make five bucks a day. Of course, it turned out that there were strings to it. Always there were strings to it. Such an enormous crowd waited outside the Highland Park plant all through the zero January night. There was a riot when the gates were opened. Cops broke heads. Job hunters threw bricks. Uh, Henry Ford's own property was destroyed. The company dicks had to turn on the fire hoses to beat back the crowd. The American plan, automotive prosperity, seeping down from above, it turned out there were strings to it. But that $5 a day paid to good, clean American workmen who didn't drink or smoke cigarettes or read or think and who didn't commit adultery and whose wives didn't take in boarders made the America once more the Yukon of the sweated workers of the world. Made all the tin lizzies and the automotive age and incidentally made Henry Ford the automobiler, the admirer of Edison, the bird lover, the great American of his time. But Henry Ford had ideas about other things besides assembly lines and the living habits of his employees. He was full of ideas. Instead of going to the city to make his fortune, he was a, here was a country boy who'd made his fortune by bringing the city out to the farm. 
the precepts he'd learned out of McGuffey's reader, his mother's prejudices and preoccupations and preconceptions, he had preserved clean and unworn as fresh printed bills in a safe in a bank. He wanted people to know about his ideas, so he brought the Dearborn Independent and started a campaign against cigarette smoking. When war broke out in Europe, he had ideas about that too. A suspicion of army men and soldiering were part of the Midwest farm tradition, like thrift, stick to temperance, and a sharp practice in money matters. Any intelligent American mechanic could see that if the Europeans hadn't been a lot of ignorant, underpaid foreigners who drank, smoked, were loose about women, and wasteful in their methods of production, the war could never have happened. When Rosica Schwimmer broke through the stockade of secretaries and servicemen who surrounded Henry Ford and suggested to him that he could stop the entire war, he said, sure, they'd hire a ship and go over and get the boys out of the trenches by Christmas. He hired a steamboat, the Oscar II, and filled it up with pacifists and social workers to go over and explain to the princelings of Europe that, when they were do that what they were doing was vicious and silly. It wasn't his fault that poor Richard's common sense no longer rules the world that most of the pacifists were nuts and goofy with headlines. When William Jennings Bryant went over to Hoboken to see him off, somebody handed William Jennings Bryant a squirrel in a cage. William Jennings Bryant made a speech with the squirrel under his arm. Henry Ford threw American Beauty roses to the crowd. The band played I Didn't Raise My Boy to Be a Soldier. Practical jokers let loose more squirrels, and a loping couple was married by a platoon of ministers in the saloon, and Mr. Zero, the flophouse humanitarian who reached the dock too late to sail, dove into the North River and swam after the boat. Oscar II was described as a floating Chautauqua. Henry Ford said it felt like a Midwestern village, but by the time they reached Christmas and in Norway, the reporters had kidded him so he had gotten cold feet and gone to bed. The world was too crazy outside of Wayne County, Michigan. Mrs. Ford and the management sent an Episcopal dean after him who brought him home under wraps, and the pacifists had to speechify without him. Two years later, Ford was manufacturing munitions, eagle boats. Henry Ford was planning one-man tanks and one-man submarines like the one tried out in the Revolutionary War. He announced to the press he'd turn over his war profits to the government, but there's no record that he ever did. One thing he brought back from his trip was the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. He started a campaign to enlighten the world in the Dearborn Independent. The Jews were why the world wasn't like Wayne County, Michigan in the old horse and buggy days. The Jews had started the war. Bolshevism, Darwinism, Marxism, Nietzsche, short skirts, and lipstick. They were behind Wall Street and the international bankers and the white slave traffic and the movies and the Supreme Court and ragtime and the illegal liquor business. Henry Ford denounced the Jews and ran for senator and sued the Chicago Tribune for libel and was the laughingstock of the kept metropolitan press. But when the metropolitan bankers tried to horn it on his business, he thoroughly outsmarted them. In 1918, he had borrowed on notes to buy out his minority stockholders for the picayune sum of $75 million. In February 1920, he needed cash to pay off some of these notes that were coming due. A banker was supposed to have called him and offered him every facility if the banker's representative could be made a member of the board of directors. Henry Ford handed the banker his hat, and he went about raising the money his own way. He shipped every car and part he had in his plant to his dealers and demanded immediate cash payment. Let the other fellow do the borrowing had always been a cardinal principle. He shut down production and canceled all orders from the supply firms. Many dealers were ruined, many supply firms failed, but when he reopened his plan, he owned it absolutely, the way a man owns an unmortgaged farm with the taxes paid up. 
1922, there started the Ford boom for president. High wages, water power industry scattered to the small towns that was skillfully pricked behind the scenes by another Cracker Barrel philosopher, Calvin Coolidge. But in 1922, Henry Ford sold 1,332,209 tin lizzies. He was the richest man in the world. Good roads had followed the narrow ruts made in the mud by the Model T. The great automotive boom was on. At Ford's production, uh, was improving all the time. Less waste, more spotters, straw bosses, stool pigeons, 15 minutes for lunch, 3 minutes to go to the toilet, the tailorized speed up everywhere, reach under, adjust washer, screw down bolt, shove in cotter pin, reach under, adjust washer, screw down bolt, reach under, adjust screw down, watch under, reach under, adjust screw down, until every ounce of one's life was sucked off into production, and at night the workmen went home gray, shaking husks. Ford owned every detail of the process, from the ore in the hills until the car rolled off the end of the assembly line under its own power. The plants were rationalized and to the last ten-thousandth of an inch as measured by the Johansson scale. In 1926, the production cycle was reduced to 81 hours from the ore in the mine to the finished saleable car proceeding under its own power, but the Model T was obsolete. New era prosperity in the American plan. There were strings to it. Always there were strings to it. It had killed the tin Lizzie. Ford's was just one of many automobile plants. When the stock market bull burst, Mr. Ford, the Cracker Barrel philosopher, said jubilantly, Told you so. Serves you right for gambling and getting in debt. The country is sound. But when the country cracked shoes and frayed trousers, belts tightened over hollow bellies, idle hands cracked and chaffed at the cold of that coldest March day of 1932, started marching from Detroit to Dearborn, asking for work in the American plan, all they could think of was Ford's machine guns. The country was sound, but they mowed the marchers down. They shot four of them dead. Henry Ford is an old man, is a passionate antiquarian, lives besieged on his father's farm, embedded in an estate of thousands of millionaire acres, protected by an army of servicemen, secretaries, secret agents, dicks, under orders of an English ex-prize fighter, always afraid of the feet in broken shoes on the roads, afraid of the gangs will kidnap his grandchildren, that crank or that a crank will shoot him, that change in the idle hands out of work will break through the gates and the high fences, protected by a private army, against the new America of starved children, hollow bellies and cracks shoes stamping on soup lines that has swallowed up the old thrifty farmlands of Wayne County, Michigan, as if they had never been. Henry Ford is an old man, is a passionate antiquarian. He rebuilt his father's farmhouse and put it back exactly in the state he remembered it as a boy. He built a village of museums for buggies, sleighs, coaches, old plows, water wheels, obsolete models of motor cars. He scoured the country for fiddlers to play old-fashioned square dances. Even old taverns he bought and put back into their original shape, as well as Thomas Edison's early laboratories. When he bought the Wayneside Inn near Sudbury, Massachusetts, he had the new highway where the new model cars roared and slithered and hissed oily past the new noise of the automobile, moved away from the door, put back the old bad road so that everything might be the way it used to be in the days of horses and buggies. From the Tin Lizzie to the Falling Waterhouse, America is a place that lauds its leaders, but it likes its heroes humble.
And up until the last 30 years, and in particular with the rise of social media in the last 15 years, America's heroes, kind of like Henry Ford, had done the, have done the average American a huge favor of allowing gatekeepers composed of agents, journalists, and PR hacks to mediate the gap between their supposed heroism and their actual lived personality and their feet of clay temperament. But now, with the ability to engage directly with fans, most notably on that wonderful social platform with the little blue bird, the gap between heroes and hero worshippers has now officially closed, and we are all tragically subject to every thought and whim that explodes forth from the fecund mind of our heroes. But it was not always so. John Dos Passos explores a lot of this in his third book of his trilogy, The Big Money. And today on the podcast, we will dissect leadership, but not only leadership. We're also going to dissect, actually, we're going to primarily focus on the gossamer-like web of gatekeepers and the gossamer-like web of celebrity that used to mediate between heroic figures such as Henry Ford, the Wright brothers, and Frank Lloyd Wright, and the public they turned their inventive and monstrous genius on at the beginning of our last century, the 20th century. We'll explore all of this through the lens, the camera eye of big money by John Dos Passos, the third and final volume today in the USA Trilogy. Back to John Dos Passos, back to the big money today here on the podcast. Now, these are going to be long chunks uh, kind of like the Henry Ford piece uh, that took up, you know, five or six minutes of our time. Uh, so just settle in and we're going to we're gonna read some long chunks today and we're going to do some analysis on these long chunks and try to try to figure out what it is that leaders can learn from Dos Passos and what they can glean from the big money. And I quote, poor daddy never did get tucked away in bed right after supper the way he liked with his reading light over his left shoulder and his glasses on and the paper in his hand and a fresh cigar in his mouth that the phone didn't ring or else it would be a knocking at the back door and mother would send little mary to open it and she'd find a miner standing there white faced with his eyelashes and eyebrows very black from the coal dust saying doc french please him a come quick and poor daddy would get up out of his bed yawning in his pajamas and bathrobe and push his untidy gray hair off his forehead and tell mary to go get his instrument case out of the office for him and be off tying his necktie as he went and half the time he'd be gone all night 
Meal times, it was worse. They never seemed to get settled at the table for a meal, the three of them, without that awful phone ringing. Daddy would go, and May and Mother would sit there finishing the meal alone, sitting there without saying anything. Little Mary, with her legs wrapped around the chair, legs staring at the picture of two dead wild ducks in the middle of the degenerate wallpaper above Mother's trim black head. Then Mother would put away the dishes and clatter around the house, muttering to herself that if poor Daddy ever took half the trouble with his paying patients that he did with those miserable foreigners and miners, he would be a rich man today and she wouldn't be killing herself with housework. Mary hated to hear Mother talk against Daddy the way she did. Poor Daddy and Mother didn't get along. Mary barely remembered a time when she was very, very small when it had been different and they lived in Denver in a sunny house with flowering bushes in the backyard. That was before Brother was taken and Daddy lost that money in the investment. Whenever anybody said Denver, it made her think of Sunny. Now they lived in Trinidad, where everything was black like coal, the scrawny hills dark, darkening the valley, full of rows of sooty shanties, the mine tippies, the miners, most of them greasers and hunkies, and the awful saloons and the choky smelter smoke and little black trains. In Denver it was sunny, and white people lived there, real clean American children, like brother who was taken, and mother said if poor daddy cared for his own flesh and blood the way he cared for those miserable foreigners and miners, brother's life might have been saved. Mother had made her go into the parlor. She was so scared, but Mother held her hand so tight it hurt terribly, but nobody paid any attention. They all thought it was on account of Brother she was crying, and Mother made her look at him in the coffin under the glass. After the funeral, Mother was very sick and had a night and a day nurse, and they wouldn't let Mary see her, and Mary had to play by herself all alone in the yard. When Mother got well, she and poor Daddy didn't get along and always slept in separate rooms, and Mary slept in the little hall room between them. Poor Daddy got gray and worried and never laughed around the house anymore after that, and then it was all about the investment, and they moved to Trinidad, and Mother wouldn't let her play with the mine children, and when she came back from school, she had knits in her hair. May had to wear, Mary had to wear glasses and was good at her studies and was ready to go to high school at 12. When she wasn't studying, she read all the books in the house. The child would ruin her eyes, Mother would say to poor Daddy across the breakfast table when he would come down with his eyes puffy from lack of sleep and would have to hurry through his breakfast and be off in time to make his calls. The spring, Mary finished the eighth grade and won prizes in French and American history and English. Miss Parsons came around specially to call on Mrs. French to tell her what a good student little Mary French was and such a comfort to the teachers after all the miserable, ignorant foreigners she had to put up with. My dear, mother said, don't think I don't know how it is. Then suddenly she said, Miss Parsons, don't tell anybody, but we're going to move to Colorado Springs next fall. Miss Parsons sighed. Well, Mrs. French will hate to lose you, but it certainly is best for the child. There's a better element in the schools there. Miss Parsons lifted her teacup with her little finger crooked. Let it down again with a dry click in the saucer. John McWhorter, the linguist, writer, New York Times columnist, and the professor, a uh, professor of, uh, I believe, of history or maybe of linguistics. I, I don't really know. I'm not really sure. At Columbia University, has often commented on the Glenn Lowry podcast or 
you know, whenever you bother to talk to him on any other podcast. He's often said that when speaking about matters of racial injustice and that last clip from John Dos Passos' Big Money was full of racial undertones, he has often commented when speaking about racial injustice in America that, and this is particularly relevant to this particular clip, the past is a strange country. We don't go there anymore. In more than one way, and not just about race or racism or casual dismissal of foreigners or the objectification or the fetishization of whiteness, quote-unquote, or white fragility or whatever the current social justice terms are, in more than one way, McWhorter is making a very trenchant observation. We don't go there anymore in judgments of our heroes' feet of clay. We don't go there anymore in granting mercy and forgiveness publicly for sins and omissions that people engage in. We don't go there anymore in dealing with people with humility and grace, realizing that, well, the people of 500 years from now may indeed tear down statues of us on the internet because we may not meet their standard of tomorrow, today. Our personal tweets and hot take TikTok videos may not age well in the thing that we've built that's the damn nearest thing to immortality, the internet. The massive hubris of our current era has average Americans like Ms. Mary and Ms. Mary's mother believing that the ways in which we communicate with each other on the internet will somehow have no impact on the future, that we can somehow be heroic without consequence, without grace, without mercy, without humility. We can engage in bad behavior and the past we can judge because it's a strange country and surely we are nothing like them not with our gee whiz technology and we forget that now is a past that someone somewhere in the future will assuredly judge harshly uh, for sure there is much to learn about the vagaries of the emotional now and the hot take now from the point of perspective of the past as was laid out by Dos Passos in The Big Money and in that particular section that I just read. But we can only learn about it if we have the courage collectively and individually and the humility to explore it, to actually read it and to deal with it, to wrap our arms around it, to not run away from it. And this is what leaders do. Leaders visit the past leaders go to that strange country and leaders try to figure out what we can pull from it that will help us in the ever-expanding always on ever-present and of course immortalized now Big Money by John Dos Passos. A long stretch here. We're 
we're going to meet a couple of uh, we're going to meet a couple of adventures peers of Henry Ford but in a different kind of way and I quote on December 17th 1903 Bishop Wright of the United Brethren, one-time editor of the Religious Telescope, received in his frame house on Hawthorne Street in Dayton, Ohio, a telegram from his boys Wilbur and Orville, who'd gotten it into their heads to spend their vacations in a little camp out on the dunes of, North Car of the North Carolina coast, tinkering with a homemade glider they knocked together themselves. Uh, the telegram read, Success! Four flights Thursday morning, all against 21-mile winds, starting from the level with engine power alone, average speed through air 31 miles, longest 57 seconds, inform press, home Christmas. The figures were a little wrong because the telegraph operator misread Orville's hasty penciled scrawl, but the fact remains that a couple of young bicycle mechanics from Dayton, Ohio, had designed, constructed, and flown for the first time ever a practical airplane. After running the motor a few minutes to heat it up, uh, I released the wire that held the machine to the track, and the machine started forward into the wind. Wilbur ran to the side of the machine, holding the wing to balance it on the track. Unlike the start on the 14th made in calm, the machine faced a two-mile wind, starting very slowly. Wilbur was able to stay with it until I lifted from the track after a 40-foot run. One of the life-saving men snapped the camera for us, taking a picture just as it reached the end of the track, and the machine had risen to the height of about two feet. The course of the flight up and down was extremely erratic, partly due to the irregularities of the air, partly to lack of experience in holding this machine. A sudden dart went a little over 220 feet from the point at which it rose in the air, ended the flight. This flight lasted only 12 seconds, but it was nevertheless the first in the history of the world in which a machine carrying a man had raised itself by its own power into the air in full flight, had sailed forward without reduction of speed, and had finally landed at a point as high as that from which it started. A little later in the day, the machine was caught in a gust of wind and turned over and smashed, almost killing the Coast Guardsmen who tried to hold it down. It was too bad, but the Wright brothers were too happy to care. They proved that the damn thing flew. When these points had been definitively established, we at once packed our goods and returned home, knowing that the age of the flying machine had come at last. They were home for Christmas in Dayton, Ohio, where they'd been born in the 70s of a family who had settled west of the Alleghenies since 1814. In Dayton, Ohio, where they'd been to grammar school and high school and had joined their father's church and played baseball and hockey and worked out the parallel bars at the flying swing and sold newspapers and built themselves a printing press out of odds and ends from the junk heap and flown kites and tinkered with mechanical contraptions and gone around town as boys doing odd jobs to turn an honest penny. The folks claimed it was the bishops bringing home a helicopter, a 50-cent mechanical toy made of two fans worked by elastic bands that was supposed to hover in the air that had got his two youngest boys hipped on the subject of flight so that they stayed home instead of marrying the way other boys did and puttered all day about the house, picking up a living with job printing, bicycle repair work, sitting up late nights reading books on aerodynamics. Still, they were sincere church members. Their bicycle business was prosperous. A man could rely on their word. They were popular in Dayton. In those days, flying machines were the big laugh of all the cracker barrel philosophers. Langley's and Chante's unsuccessful experiments had been jeered down with an I told you so that rang from coast to coast. The Wright's big problem was to find a place secluded enough to carry on their experiments without being the horse laugh of the countryside. Then they had no money to spend. They were practical mechanics. When they needed anything, they built it themselves. 
They hit on Kitty Hawk on the great dunes and sandy banks that stretch south towards Hatteras, seaward of Albemarle Sound, a vast stretch of sea beach, empty except for a Coast Guard station, a few fishermen's shacks, and the swarms of mosquitoes, and the ticks, and the chiggers, and the crabgrass behind the dunes, and overhead the gulls and swooping terns, and the evening fish hawks and cranes flapping across the salt marshes, occasionally eagles that the Wright brothers followed, soaring with their eyes as Leonardo watched them centuries before, straining his sharp eyes to apprehend and the laws of flight. Four miles across the loose sand from the scattering of shacks, the Wright brothers built themselves a camp and a shed for their gliders. It was a long way to pack their groceries, their tools, anything they happened to need in summer, and it was hot as blazes. The mosquitoes were hell, but they were alone there, and they figured out that the loose sand was as soft as anything they could find to fall in. There was a glider made of two plants and a tail, which they lay flat on their bellies and controlled the warp of the planes by shimmying their hips, taking off again and again all day from a big dune named Kill Devil Hill. They learned to fly. Once they managed to hover for a few seconds and soar ever so slightly on a rising air current, they decided the time had come to put a motor in their biplane. Back in the shop in Dayton, Ohio, they built an air tunnel, which is their first great contribution to the science of flying, and tried out model planes in it. They couldn't interest any builders of gasoline engines, so they had to build their own motor. It worked. After that Christmas of 1903, the Wright brothers weren't doing it for fun anymore. They gave up their bicycle business, got the use of a big old cow pasture belonging to the local banker for practice flights, spent all their time when they weren't working on their machine in promotion, worrying about patents, infringement, spies, trying to interest government officials to make sense of the smooth, involved, heartbreaking remarks of lawyers. In 20 years, or sorry, in two years, they had a plane that would cover 24 miles at a stretch round and round the cow pasture. People on the inner urban car used to crank their necks out of the windows when they passed along the edge of the field, startled by the clattering pop-pop of the old right motor and the sight of the white biplane like a pair of ironing boards, one on top of the other, chugging along at a good 50 feet in the air. The cows soon got used to it. As the flights got longer, the Wright brothers got backers engaged in lawsuits, lay in their beds at night sleepless with the whine of phantom millions worse than the mosquitoes at Kitty Hawk. In 1907, they went to Paris, allowed themselves to be togged out in dress suits and silk hats, learned to tip waiters, talked with government experts, got used to gold braid and postponements and Van Dyke beers and the outspread palms of politicos. For amusement, they played Diablo in the Tuileries Garden. They gave publicized flights at Fort Myers, where they had their first fatal crack-up. St. Petersburg, Paris, Berlin, at Pau, they were all the rage, such an attraction that the hotel keeper wouldn't charge them for their room. Alfonso of Spain shook hands with them and was photographed sitting in the machine. King Edward watched a flight. The crown prince insisted on being taken up. The reign of medals began. They were congratulated by the Tsar and the King of Italy and the amateurs of sport and the society climbers and the papal titles and the decorated by a society for universal peace. Aeronautics became the sport of the day. The Wrights don't seem to have been very much impressed by the upholstery and the parade and the gold medals and the parades of plush horses. They remained practical mechanics and insisted on doing all their own work themselves, even to filling the gas tank. In 1911, they were back on the dunes of Kitty Hawk with a new glider. Orville stayed up in the air for nine and a half minutes, which remained a long, for a long time the record for motorless flight. 
the same year, Wilbur died of typhoid fever in Dayton. In the rush of new names, Farnham, Blairoy, Curtis, Faber, Ensignal, Peltry, Delagrange, in the snorting impact of bombs, in the whine and rattle of shrapnel, in the sudden stuttering of machine guns after the motor's been shut off overhead, and we flatten into the mud and make ourselves small, cowering in the corners of ruined walls, the Wright brothers passed out of the headlines, but not even the headlines or the bitter smear of newsprint or the choke of smokescreen and gas or chatter of brokers on the stock market or barking of phantom millions or oratory of brass hats laying wreaths on new monuments can blur the memory of the chilly December day to shivering bicycle mechanics from Dayton, Ohio, first felt their homemade contraption whittled out of hockey sti hickory sticks gummed together with Arnstein's bicycle cement stretched with muslin they'd sewn on their sister's sewing machine in their own backyard on Hawthorne Street in Dayton, Ohio, soar into the air above the dunes and the wide beach at Kitty Hawk. idea that leadership is supposed to make you happy or at the very minimum supposed to bring you some kind of pleasure the idea that leadership is supposed to be an easy act um, cuts through a lot of the ways in which we think about leadership first the leading of our homes or actually really it starts with the leading of ourselves first with the leading of ourselves then with the leading of our homes then with the leading of our communities Leadership gets harder and harder the higher and higher up the hierarchy you go, the closer to scale you get. Orville and Wilbur Wright weren't really thinking about leadership, right? I mean, they were practical mechanics. And by the way, everything that Dos Passos writes about Henry Ford, um, about Orville and Wilbur Wright, and upcoming, the next person we're going to talk about, these three titans of the early 20th century, was publicly reported, right? It was all publicly available. He could see these folks' leadership in real time, but they weren't thought of as leaders. They were thought of as practical mechanics. It wasn't until much later that folks like Ford and Wright, Edison, and many others were seen as being innovators, were seen as being inventors, were seen as being leaders. Leading your community matters more than leading the country, though. And leading your home matters more than even leading your community. And leading yourself matters more than leading your home. This temptation to scale up leadership to the highest level and to ignore the necessity, to ignore the primacy of leadership further down the, down the pike or lower down the hierarchy has created a modern environment which isn't so modern after all where a ceo might lead a billion dollar company but the relationship with their community is non-existent as is the relationships with the people in their homes and in their families it's easy to go high and fix the world or to fly high over the world it's really hard to get down in the dirt with the patents and the lawyers and the papal titles and the politicos. 
growth as a distraction from hard work, growth as a way to feed the ambitious, growth as a way to lose focus, or even, and this is more my concern, growth at all costs is the mantra of leadership today. Not just business, but leadership in general. We must grow. But now we're in 2022, and coming out on the other side of a global pandemic, I wonder if growth at all costs is still the thing that we value. I wonder if we are moving into a space now where things are shrinking, where things are decreasing, where truly practical men who are truly practically inventive will come to the forefront and will begin to show us things that we have not seen before but they won't be showing us things we haven't seen before from the lofty heights of social media or from the lofty heights of the CEO or C-suite. Instead, they'll be showing us things we haven't seen before from the lofty heights of home and family. Look, here's the warning for you as a leader. Growth always takes a toll. And leaders can pay now, or they can pay later. But always, every time, you are going to pay. Back to Dos Passos, our final selection from the USA Trilogy, published by Mariner Books with an introduction by E.L. Doctorow, where he references Jean-Paul Sartre, where he talks a little bit about Dos Passos being a peer of Hemingway. And of course, Dos Passos was part of that intelligentsia, right? That part of the group of, that part of the the, the gatekeepers, right, of the past. So when the big money and when 42nd Parallel, when 1919 were published, um, average people didn't really know all these things that we now know about celebrity. They didn't really realize how much heroes had feats of clay. And Dos Passos, even in the passages that we are reading today, does make an attempt to continue to shore up those feet, to continue to build up those people, even while being ironic. And, of course, counterbalancing this with the flawed nature of real Americans, right? Like Ms. Mary French, real people like Dr. French, struggling to do the things at the bottom end of the spectrum while their heroes strut across the stage. Back to the book, back to the big money. And I quote, A muggy day in the late spring in 1887, a tall youngster of 18 with fine eyes and a handsome, arrogant way of carrying his head arrived in Chicago with $7 left in his pocket from buying his ticket from Madison with some cash he'd got by pawning Plutarch's Lives, a Gibbons decline and fall of the Roman Empire, and an old fur-collared coat. 
before leaving home to make himself a career in an architect's office. There was no architecture course at Wisconsin to clutter his mind with stale Beau Arts drawings. The youngster had seen the dome of the new state capitol in Madison collapse on account of bad rubble work in the piers. Some thieving contractors skimping materials to save the politicians their rake-off, and perhaps a trifling but deadly error in the architect's plans. He never forgot the roar of burst masonry, the flying plaster, the soaring dust cloud, the mashed bodies of the dead and dying being carried out, set faces livid with plaster dust. Walking around downtown Chicago, crossing and recrossing the bridges over the Chicago River, the jingle and clatter of traffic, the rattle of vans and loaded wagons, and the stamping of big dray horses and the hooting of towboats with barges and the rumbling whistle of lake steamers waiting for the draw, he thought of the great continent stretching a thousand miles east and south and north, three thousand miles west and everywhere at mine heads on the shores of newly dredged harbors, along watercourses, at the intersections of railroads, Sprouting shacks, roundhouses, tipples, <clears throat> grain elevators, stores, warehouses, tenements, great houses for the wealthy set in broad, tree-shaded lawns, domed state houses on hills, hotels, churches, opera houses, auditoriums. He walked with long, eager steps towards the untrammeled future, opening in every direction for a young man who'd keep his hands to his work and his wits sharp to invent. The same day, he landed a job in an architect's office. Frank Lloyd Wright was the grandson of a Welsh hatter and preacher who'd settled in a rich Wisconsin valley, Spring Valley, and raised a big family of farmers and preachers and school teachers there. Wright's father was a preacher too, a restless, ill-adjusted New Englander who studied medicine, preached in a Baptist church in Weymouth, Massachusetts, and then, as a Unitarian in the Middle West, taught music, read Sanskrit, and finally walked out on his family. Young Wright was born on his grandfather's farm, went to school in Weymouth and Madison, worked summers on a farm of his uncle's in Wisconsin. His training in architecture was the reading of Violette Ledoux, the apostle of the 13th century, and the pure structural mathematics of Gothic stonemasonry, and the seven years he worked with Louis Sullivan in the office of Adler and Sullivan in Chicago. It was Louis Sullivan who, after Richardson, invented whatever was invented in 19th century architecture in America. When Frank Lloyd Wright left Sullivan, he had already launched a distinctive style, prairie architecture. In Oak Park, he built a broad suburban dwelling. He built broad suburban dwellings for rich men that were the first buildings to break the hold on American builders' minds of centuries of past ward routine of the worn-out capital and plinth and pediment dragged through the centuries from the Acropolis and the jaded traditional stencils of Roman masonry, the half-obliterated Palladian copybooks. Frank Lloyd Wright was cutting out a new avenue, a new avenue that led towards the swift constructions in glass, bricks, and steel foreshadowed today. Delightedly, he reached out for the new materials, steel and tension, glass, concrete, the million new metals and alloys. The son and grandson of preachers, he became a preacher in blueprints, projecting constructions in the American future instead of the European past. Inventor of plans, plotter of tomorrow's girder work phrases, he preaches to the young men coming of age in the time of oppression, cooped up by the plasterboard partitions of finance routine, their lives and plans made poor by feudal levies of parasite money standing astride every process to shake down the progress for the cutting of coupons. 
The properly citified citizen has become a broker, dealing chiefly in human frailties, or the ideas and inventions of others, a puller of levers, a presser of buttons of vicarious power, his by the way of machine craft, and over beside him and beneath him, even his heart as he sleeps, is the taximeter of rent, some form to goad this anxious consumer's unceasing struggle for or against more or less merciful or merciless money increment. To the young men who spend their days and nights drift, drafting the plans for new rented aggregates of rented cells upended on hard pavements, he preaches the horizons of his boyhood, a future that is not the rise of a few points in a hundred selected stocks, or an increase in car loadings, or a multiplication of credit in the bank, or a rise in the rate on call money, but a new clean construction from the ground up, based on uses and needs towards the American future instead of towards the pain-smeared past of Europe and Asia. Usonia, he calls the broad teeming band of his new nation across the enormous continent between Atlantic and Pacific. He preaches a project for Usonia. It is easy to realize how the complexity of utilitarian construction and the mechanical infancy of our growth, like the crude scaffolding of some noble building, did violence to the landscape. The crude purpose of pioneering days has been accomplished. The scaffolding may be taken down, and the true work, the culture of a civilization, may appear. Like the life of many a preacher, prophet, exhorter, Frank Lloyd Wright's life has been storming. He has raised children, had rows with wives, overstepped boundaries, gotten into difficulties with the law, divorce courts, bankruptcy, always the yellow press yapping at his heels, his misfortunes yelled out in headlines in the evening papers, affairs with women, the nightmare horror of the burning of his house in Wisconsin. By a curious irony, the building that is most completely his is the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo. That was one of the few structures to come unharmed to the earthquake of 1923. The day the cable came telling him that the building had stood, saving so many hundreds of lives, he writes was one of his happiest days, and it was reading in German that most Americans first learned of his work. His life has been full of arrogant projects unaccomplished. How often does the preacher hear his voice echo back hollow from the empty hall? The draftsmen watch the dust fuzz over the carefully contrived plans. The architects see the rolled-up blueprints curled, yellowing and brittle, in the filing cabinet. Twice he's rebuilt his house where he works in his grandfather's valley in Wisconsin after fires and disasters that would have smashed most men forever. He works in Wisconsin, an erect, spare, white-haired man. His sons are architects. Apprentices from all over the world come to work with him, drafting the new city. He calls it Broadacre City. Near and far are beaten. To imagine the new city, you must blot out every ingrained habit of the past, build a nation from the ground up with the new tools. For the architect, there are only uses. The incredible multiplication of functions, strength, and tension in metal, the dynamo, the electric coil, radio, the photoelectric cell, the internal combustion motor, glass, concrete, and needs. Tell us, doctors of philosophy, what are the needs of men? At least a man needs not be jailed, not afraid, not hungry, not cold, not without love, not a worker for power he has never seen that cares nothing of the uses and needs of man or a woman or a child. Building a building is building the lives of the workers and dwellers in the building. The buildings determine civilization as the cells and the honeycomb the functions of bees. Perhaps, in spite of himself, the arrogant draftsman, the dilettante in concrete, the bohemian artist for wealthy ladies desiring to pay for prominence with the startling elaboration of their homes, has been forced by the logic of uses and needs, 
by the lifelong struggle against the dragging undertow of money in Mortmain to draft plans that demand for their fulfillment a new life only in freedom, can we build the Usonian city? His plans are coming to life. His blueprints, as once Walt Whitman's words stir the young men, Frank Lloyd Wright, patriarch of the new building, not without honor, except in his own country. Where now, in our day, are all the grown-ups? This is a question I'm sure Frank Lloyd Wright asked, and I'm sure Henry Ford asked, and I'm sure Orville Wright asked at some point in time in his life. This is a question that I'm sure Thomas Edison asked. It's also a question I'm sure my mother has asked and your mother has asked. Um, but it is a question that's increasingly being asked by younger and younger individuals. Um, but it has particular resonance when we think about leadership. Like we just read in that clip about Frank Lloyd Wright, he pursued his passion, but pursuing passion meant making hard decisions with the wives and the divorces and the yellow press yapping at his heels. And leaders do hard things. They make hard decisions. They engage in the unpleasantness of sacrifice and they perform these tasks. They perform these sacrifices. They, per they, they make these decisions. They do these hard things without looking for or getting a pat on the back, getting a thank you, or really getting much encouragement at all. Mature leaders, regardless of age, lead in this way and the place where the stark realities of leadership are the most pronounced is on the field of battle a field that undercuts the story of henry ford the story of frank lloyd wright and even the story of orville and wilbur wilbur wright um it undercuts everything in big money because it undercuts and undergirds and floats like a horror underneath everything that John Dos Passos wrote as part of the lost generation that included Hemingway and Fitzgerald and Ezra Pound. All those guys went to war because they believed in it and they were all, they were all generational um, bohemians and generational ideologues and they were all generational pals of the Lloyd Wrights and the the Henry Fords and the Thomas Edisons. Well, maybe not so much Edison. Edison was a generation older than them, um, but definitely Orville and Wilbur, right? War. Hmm. Mature leaders, regardless of age, lead with a sense that they are grown-ups. They lead with a sense that there's just some things that have to be done. There's just some decisions that have to be taken up. They lead in this way and in this place, and they do it most notably um, where the stark realities are, of, of leadership are most pronounced, and that is on the field of battle. And we haven't really focused on the war parts of the USA trilogy, but there are references in it to World War One. 
there are references to times of deprivation, as in, um, well, the Great Depression, which Dos Passos also saw, and of course, references to Roosevelt's desire to build a new deal, create a new society. In thinking about warfare and thinking about behaving like a grown-up, there is much made of the lessons the leader can learn and apply from the preparation and execution of the battles of old up to the present day. Um, books, stories, movies, poems, and on and on and on. And yet, reading a well-written story of the thing, Hemingway discussing um, battle and a farewell to arms, right? Or um, Stephen Crane writing about the Civil War. Reading a well-written story of the thing, even if it is written by a talented author who was there, who was experiencing it, is never quite the same as experiencing the thing directly. And in a dichotomous twist in our era, the people of the past would probably find less than amusing, even Dos Passos would find it less than amusing, many postmodern business and community leaders in the West while happily adopting the language of warfare, have had little actual lived experience with warfare and the leadership that is required to make hard decisions within warfare. And that gap, that gap between language and experience and the desire to cross it uh, and the desire to use language to, to motivate the unmotivated and to shake followers out of ennui or to impress upon the team member urgency and, 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 and the desire to go in the now, this can be compared in scope and in breath and probably in foolishness to juggling a landmine and hoping that it doesn't explode on you. Leaders need to be grown-ups and Dos Passos and Fitzgerald and Pound and Hemingway and Ford and Wright and Orville and Wilver. There's one thing you can say about them. They were grown-ups. They were grown-ups. They understood fundamentally that there is the gap that exists between the lessons we read about or observe and the reality that stands before us. And yes, they may have had wackadoo ideas about foreigners or Jews. They may have held ideas about people that we find to be morally repulsive in the now, just as we hold ideas in the now that people a hundred years from now will find morally repulsive. They may have had feet of clay and may have been no more ethical or moral than us, but yet they were grown-ups and they understood something that leaders need to cotton to, and it's this. Grown-up leaders watch their words and they speak very carefully and judiciously when leading others. And they do so not because their words are going to be recorded and played back to them and they will be found guilty. It's not because of that. But it's because the world is hard. Decisions are tough. And you almost never get a thank you.
So, what are we to take from Dos Passos' cast of characters, uh, public figures that we picked on purpose in these selections from The Big Money? And what are we to take from The Big Money and 1919 and 42nd Parallel as a whole for leaders? Well, a couple of different things. First thing I would say is that um, this is a 1,200-page trilogy. This, this book stands as an epic that defines who America was in the early part of the 20th century. And strangely enough, reading through it and examining it, it reverberates down to where America currently is in the early part of the 21st century. Matter of fact, the only difference between them and us is our cell phones and our computers. But the human heart is the same. Which means that leadership as an active act of engagement, leadership as a thing that grown-ups do, leadership starting with ourselves and moving in concentric circles outward to a larger construct known as America still matters. How can leadership solve crises and problems? How can leaders stay on the path this is something we're obsessed with on this podcast, and we repeat it over and over again because someone somewhere is always listening or watching this podcast for the first time. Um, and so I don't know how many of these episodes you've listened to, and I don't know how many more you're going to continue listening to, but I do know this. Someone somewhere is listening to this at the for the very first time. And so we lean on this all of the time. We lean on this idea of leadership as an active act. And Dos Passos shows us, oddly enough, in his attempt to bring to the forefront people who seemed to be meaningless in the early 20th century, whose lives seemed to be plotless, winding in and out in between heroes' feet of clay that we read about in newspapers and that get lauded in our history. In his attempt to show that, he's actually showing the path for the average person towards leadership. We do have to dissect leadership and... Sometimes people don't like that because it's not satisfying. And I get it. Like, you know, dissecting leadership makes it almost sometimes as incomprehensible as dissecting gossamer and probably just about as satisfying, right? But we have to take the opportunity with these books, with these pieces of literature, from Shakespeare to Milton, from Voltaire to Gabriel Garcia Marquez, from Chichinwe Akebe all the way to Joseph Conrad and everyone in between. And yes, I'm also thinking about Virginia Woolf and Jane Austen and George Eliot. We have to take these elements of literature and we have to use them to dissect leadership. And Dos Passos doesn't dissect leadership so much as he merely opens a 1,200-page book for you and says, come on in. And take a look. Would you like to see more? Dissecting leadership is sometimes about understanding what you're seeing, and sometimes it's about just eating at the buffet. There's so much to learn about now from the literature of the past. Um, not next year, but in a couple of years, we're going to be looking at 
um, War and Peace, another beast of a book that's going to take four episodes to get through. That's going to take a whole month for, for one book. And the Russian version of the USA trilogy, which I would call, I would call War, I would definitely put War and Peace in that category, has so much to say not only about the heart of being Russian, but also about the heart of leading, the heart of decision-making, the heart of being a grown-up, the heart of making hard decisions, and the heart of living with consequences, that it is a beast of a book. And Dos Passos's book stands up well next to that book. But none of this dissection, none of this pulling apart is going to make you happy. We fetishized happiness, and we fetishized egalitarianism, and we fetishized individuality. We live in a world, at least, or at least in the United States, where the cult of individuality, the cult of egalitarianism, and the cult of happiness, which is basically the cult of the selfish me, have all merged together. And we fundamentally believe that if we're not happy, if everything isn't fair all of the time, and, of course, if everybody isn't feeling good, well, then somehow we failed. Leaders know that this is the thinking of children. This is the thinking of, well, any two-year-old you've ever run across, right? Leaders, genuine leaders, know that not only is life unfair, but sometimes it's not even worth commenting on that it's unfair, and that the unfairness, the hardness, the lack of egalitarianism in life and in pursuits, well, leading people through that won't make them happy. But it needs to be done anyway if we want to preserve what we've got, if we want to stay on the path of being a nation state, if we want to stay on the path of being a culture, and if we want to stay on the path of being a society. Which gets me to this last idea from Dos Passos, and we'll be exploring this more in upcoming episodes over the next month as we think about war. Because there's no better place to see an example of this, and there's no better place where things get real sharp real quick than in the space of warfare. But this idea that we're going to begin to introduce today at the end of our comments on Dos Passos's USA Trilogy. Leaders need to be the grown-ups in the room. When people look around and they want to see who's actually going to step up, who's actually going to take charge, who's going to be the grown-up, who's going to make the hard decision and live with the difficult consequence and accept responsibility and accountability for that consequence, who's going to show moral courage, well, doesn't matter what your position is in the organizational hierarchy. It doesn't matter who voted for you. It doesn't really matter what the title says on your business cards. What matters is, are you a grown-up? And one of the pieces I think Dos Passos would agree with me on, one of the pieces of analysis that Dos Passos would agree with me on, I believe, is that we've always had people who have been um, elevated past the point of their talents in leadership positions. And my clarion call to those people 
is that it's time to grab the reins and grow up. And fundamentally, that's what the USA Trilogy, a book that, or a series of books that no one reads anymore, can teach us about staying on the path in leadership, both now and wherever else we may wind up at in this long 21st century. And well, that's it for me. Listen and subscribe to the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast on all the major podcast players that you listen to podcasts on, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and even Spotify. And please leave a five-star review if you like the show. We need those reviews to grow, and it's the easiest way to make sure that this show gets into the ears of the leaders who need to hear it. And of course, tell all your friends. If you want to get started on the leadership path, HSCT Publishing's products and services can help your team do that. Check out our training webinars, coaching services, and more at leadershiptoolbox.us. We also have a video-based subscription service, that's software as a service, that can help your team become better at the individual level. 60 modules on over 100 hours of video and written content for you at leadingkeys.com. That's leadingkeys.com. We've also got books that will help you and your team grow. Pick up a copy today of My Boss Doesn't Care, 100 Essays on Disrupting Your Workplace by Disrupting Your Boss, and subscribe to the Little Red Podcast I launched earlier this year with the same name as that Little Red Book. My most recent book is 12 Rules for Leaders, The Foundation of Intentional Leadership, co-written with contributions from Bradley Madigan. This is the book for right now that was written for leaders right now. Pick up a copy by heading over to 12rulesleadersbook.com backslash now. That's 12rulesleadersbook.com backslash now. You pay for shipping and you'll get a copy of my second book as well. Finally, you can get all these books in paperback, hardcover, or as ebooks on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and any other place online you order books. Finally, HSCT Publishing is on YouTube. Like and subscribe to the video version of the Leadership Lessons for the Great Books podcast on the HSCT Publishing channel on YouTube. Just search for HSCT Publishing and hit the subscribe button. You'll get our weekly video updates, which is the video version of this podcast. And, of course, you're going to want to subscribe to my other podcast. That's right, I do do more than one. The Hayson Sorrells Presents Audio Experience, where I talk more casually with a broader range of people about all matters that matter in the world today. 
from arts all the way to analytics. All right, that's it for me.